Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Book Network's New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Patty Farmer, the author of Playboy Laughs, the comedy, comedians, and cartoons of Playboy. Patty, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Rebecca. So I'm wondering if you could just start by talking about why Playboy, how you got into this topic, and how you started this book, why this book. <laughs> you know, it's a funny story. Um, I'm, if you had asked me five years ago about Playboy, uh, the immediate picture I would have of Playboy is what most people have. You know, immediately you think of centerfolds and bunnies. But in writing another book, which was about an old-time New York nightclub, I interviewed a lot of people, uh, people like Patty Page and Diane Carroll and Jack Jones and, and on and on. And every one of them told me a story about starting out in the Playboy clubs or at the jazz festival or on the TV show. And so that kind of uh, piqued my interest. And I am a historian and a researcher. So um, the more I would hear about how Playboy influenced them, the more interested I got. And, and my research really opened up this this whole world of how important Hugh Hefner and Playboy really were uh, to the entertainment industry, to um, you know, musicians and the comedians. For, for the comedians, the Playboy clubs really bridged the time between the nightclubs and the comedy clubs of the, uh, the 80s. It gave uh, the comedians a whole circuit to work from. You know, um, I, re- I had an interview with Joan Rivers uh, before she passed that way too young an age, I would think. Mm-hmm. But um, she told me the Playboy Clubs uh, was great for her starting out because it gave her a place to be bad. And um, by that she meant she could work on her timing and they provided a, a circuit. So they had 40 clubs, and you can go from one to the next, and and until you got really good and were ready to move up to the next next level. And so you divide your book into sort of two parts. You talk about, like you've started to talk about the schmoozers, right, the clubs, and then the art of Playboy. So let's start with the Playboy and the comedy clubs. And, yeah, reading your book was really interesting to me because I also didn't know the huge history of how Playboy sort of – um, move beyond just a newspaper or a magazine, I guess I should say, not mm-hmm. newspaper, but move beyond a magazine. And so can you talk a little bit, you start out by talking about sort of comedy and stand-up comedy and sort of the history and place of stand-up. So could you talk a little bit about those beginnings as well of comedy and stand-up? Uh, definitely. And and I have to, to add on to what you just said, you know, it was a magazine, but you know, an unusual magazine, right? It was a magazine mm-hmm. for for men. So to to have this a big appreciation of culture and comedy and the arts, uh, I found really fascinating. And the w- the way I started the Playboy comedy star uh, story was to go back a little bit to uh, to vaudeville and burlesque. Those were really uh, the roots of comedy in the U.S. And uh, they weren't always pretty, uh, definitely segregated. Um, child labor laws hadn't been enforced yet. I, uh, 
And I have to take a little break and, and just explain to your listeners that the way I write is I do the history, I do all the research, and then I go to the performers themselves. I think it's more interesting to let them tell their story. So it's a lot of oral oral history in here. And um, different comedians told me about working in those early days, working in the circus. Uh, 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 who was it? Jackie Curtis told me he worked from the time he was six in the circus and in burlesque. And, you know, it was just, um, it was, if you were in the audience, it was a funny time, but if you lived through it, I don't think it was so great. Uh, burlesque, you know, uh, was, you know, mainly girls. You know, the men came. Sometimes they brought a wife or a date, but there were a lot of um, uh, strip teases in between. Uh, not in between. The strip teases were the, the main act, and you had comedians keeping the audience in their seats for the next act, which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it was Bill Marks, uh, son of Harpo, who was kind enough to educate me on that. And he, he told me that in between the acts, you'd have a comedian come out and shoot like a one-liner. It was really the beginning of stand-up. And uh, then the, the girls would come. But from there, it progressed uh, to um, the opposite of burlesque. The nightclubs came into to being. And you had places where the comedians, you know, started appearing in tuxedos. And they were the headliners. Um, so that was a really elegant time. But then the demise of the nightclubs and right about the, the mid-50s, they were weaning out quite a bit. And along comes Playboy and Hugh Hefner and his Playboy clubs. Right. So these Playboy clubs started around the nineteen, the beginning of the nineteen sixties, mid nineteen sixties, and then um, went till around the mid seventies. Right. So can you talk about sort of the rise of these clubs and how Hugh Hefner sort of came to this idea? What made him think that these clubs would be a good, successful. <laughs> Rebecca, I have to tell you, it was not in Playboy's business plan to <laughs> open nightclubs. I mean, it was one of those things that you look back and you say that's just the craziest way to build an empire. Right. But uh, you're talking 1959 and Hugh Hefner's a young man and his uh, good buddy and second in charge of at Playboy with Victor Lowndes. And um, Playboy had written an article about another nightclub, uh, the Gaslight Clubs. And it was very uh, uh, period. You, the girls were dressed in little period costumes, but very scanty, scantily clothed. And um, they received about 3,000 letters. And in those days, it was men. They sat down, they wrote, wrote letters to Playboy like, you know, is there a gaslight club in Chicago or in New York or where can I find one or, you know, just all these questions. And Playboy magazine had a habit of answering every letter. They had the secretaries, you know, write a reply. And um, so Victor Lounge one day went into Hef's office and said, you know, how do you want to handle this, Hef? I have all these uh, 
letters, and I really will need to hire a couple more secretaries to answer them if you want us to answer all these. So I have thought about it, and almost at the same time, they said, you know, why are we promoting somebody else's club? Wouldn't it be great if we could open a club of our own? And again, you have to picture, these are two kids in their 20s. Uh, Hef with his soda and, and Victor with whatever he was drinking. <laughs> and um, they they noodled that around. They said, yeah, you know, we know a lot of entertainers and um, that would just be so great. You know, we could have our own club. And then they kind of looked at each other and laughed and they said, yeah, but we know Bubkiss about running a nightclub. <laughs> and Victor Lounge said, but you know, I have a buddy down the street and he knows a lot about running a nightclub. So they packed up, they walked down the street, and the buddy was Arnie Morton, who um, later on opened a chain of very, very good and very successful uh, steak restaurants, Morton's. But again, Arnie was a young guy, and they went in, and they said, Hey, Mar- uh, Arnie, we have this idea. And Arnie says, you know, piece of cake. I can take care of the food and beverage. You guys take care of the entertainment and the girls. And that's how it was born. They each actually threw in money to do this. They um, each put in $10,000. Hugh Hefner uh, bought a share for Playboy Company and a, play, a share for himself personally. Victor Lowndes and Arnie Mar- Morton each put in $10,000 and... The Playboy Club was off and running. And, and they never did anything in a long-range way. You know, they decided the next day they were looking for a building and uh, getting it worked up. And February 1960, they opened in Chicago and were just a runaway success. And, and a big change on the culture. Right. And you talk a bit about this in your book, about how... They sort of knew how to sell to make it sort of feel high class, but sell to the working working man or the working family. Like you also talk about resorts as well, right? These sort of family resorts. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what it was that they did that really engaged or got the working class or that sort of everyday person or middle class person involved and excited about going to these clubs? In my opinion, it was brilliant because they made it a members-only club, but it was not expensive. And anyone who could fill out an application and had $20 to uh, apply could become a member. But psychologically, it made people feel like they belonged to the swankiest club in the world. And it, it really became became a culture uh, thing. One of the, the comedians, Dick Gregory, told me, he said, you looked for any excuse at all to show your Playboy uh, <laughs> a card or Playboy key. Like, you you're go to get your cleaning and you go, oh, oh, that's my Playboy club key. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to give that to you. Because it became so... Um, so iconic. Uh, even Ian Fleming, who, it's another story, you know, he was a great friend of Hugh Hefner because of the magazine, because he wrote for the magazine. But even Ian Fleming had James Bond in uh, Diamonds Are Forever in the movie. He opens his wallet 
and next to his license to kill is his Playboy club card. <laughs> I mean, it became the working man could become James Bond. You know, that was the, the feeling. And it was, it was still a very, very, um, um, Disney-like club. And, and Newsweek did actually, uh, come up with the phrase that they said it was Disneyland for adults. And by that, I meant it was, it was unlike anything people had ever seen. They had great entertainment. They had, uh, jazz because Hef loved jazz and they had comedians and, many times more than one comedian, but they had to keep it clean. Hugh Hefner wanted uh, family, you know, and, and wives, mm-hmm. uh, mainly with the clubs. Uh, he wanted the men to feel like they could, could bring their wives in and, and become that kind of club that appealed to everybody. Yes, there were girls running around with ears on their head and not much on their bottoms, but they could still bring their wives and and feel like they were in a classy a classy joint uh and and it worked it worked they had good food great entertainment they ended up having uh, 42 clubs worldwide so people felt <clears throat> you know the traveling salesmen felt you know I'm I have to be in Cincinnati next week but I'll go to my club I have a club there so um it was it was really a great concept and a, a great idea, and it worked for everybody. It worked for the members and for the comedians and the other performers. It gave them work. You know, they they if they were good enough, they got on the circuit, and they could work, you know, 50 weeks out of the year doing what they loved. Uh, Jerry Van Dyke, I had the pleasure of talking to him, and he said he worked like five years doing the circuit. And and then finally he got his big break and and was able to to move up a, a, to the next level to doing movies and and TV and working with his brother. Right. And so you talk about you mentioned there you know at the heyday there's like 42 clubs worldwide, and they also had resorts right these family resorts and some of these resorts didn't go over as well as the clubs did. But can you talk a little bit about the resorts as well and, and how they worked and, and sort of the vision for them? Yeah, you know, it was, um, in theory, it was a great idea. You know, Hef wanted a, a resort where, where families could come. They could get away from the city. Uh, he opened the first one in Chicago, and it was in the suburbs of Chicago, like Geneva, and uh, he he spent so much money. You know, they had the ski lifts, uh, they had uh, a runway, you could land your own plane there, uh, swimming pools, entertainment, just everything you could think of, every amenity you could think of, but um, they put too much money into it, and then when they weren't attracting as big a amount of crowds that they wanted, they started really throwing money at entertainers. And they started paying, uh, going outside their business plan, which was they paid an, a set amount of money to everyone, whether you were Tony Bennett or, you know, somebody that you hadn't heard of just starting out. You got the same amount of money. And that, that practice was changed with the resorts. 
you know, they ended up hiring you know, Anne Margaret to open a resort, and they pay her thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Shecky Green. He said they hired him to come and perform at the resort in uh, Great Gorge, New Jersey, uh, in the hopes of attracting gamblers, because New Jersey was setting up for gamblers, and, and Shecky attracted that kind of crowd. But he said it was sad, because... You know, you'd be performing to an empty room or a half-full room. Um, and and I think Hef made a mistake in, he always wanted to own everything. So he bought the property and they built the resort, where at the time, even the Hyatts were leasing property. You know, if a mm-hmm. Hyatt was opening a resort, they would lease the property. They would, you know, rent the building and uh, operate that way. So it was, uh, in my opinion, really the beginning of the end of the clubs because it's, it was a heavy, heavy drain on the clubs. Luckily, they had a gambling Playboy Club in London that kind of kept all the other clubs afloat for quite a few years. Mm-hmm. And so, so you sort of set us up with the clubs and the resorts and you talk then you talk to the comedians right and you talk about sort of the comedians and their experiences and one of the things we can talk about a lot of the different stories but one of the things I found really interesting is how Playboy sort of challenged especially during the early 60s the the divide between African-American and white comedians and sort of racial blending and allowing comedians just sort of to play anywhere. So can you talk a little bit about how Hugh Hefner and how Playboy sort of pushed at that color barrier? That was huge. Um, Hugh Hefner is truly one of the most, or maybe the only truly colorblind person that, that I have ever met. And he didn't even think about it. It wasn't a conscious decision that he said, uh, segregation is wrong and it's not going to happen at my clubs. I think uh, he just went ahead and did it, and then when there were repercussions, uh, he, he was always <laughs> shocked by it. Uh, but at the club in, in Chicago, he hired Dick Gregory, who is an Afro-American comedian, and gave him a, a job. And he, it ended up that he was performing his, the first night in front of uh, a bunch of businessmen on convention from Alabama. So it wasn't <laughs> even like locals at the club. And they were as shocked as Dick was. He told me he uh, went out on stage and looked at all these these faces and someone actually said, you know, we're from Alabama. <laughs> and, you know, Dick made a joke and said, yeah, you know, I, I spent a lot of time there one night and uh, just had them in the palm of his hands. And it was a, a very memorable night. The shows typically go on for an hour and and you, you do two or three shows a night, depending on the club. Well, he went, Dick went on at eight o'clock and about 11 o'clock, you know, he was still on. You know, the, the guys wouldn't let him get off, and he was having fun. As long as a comedian has an audience, you can't get him off the <laughs> stage. And um, about uh, 11.30, Victor Lowndes goes over to the mansion where Hefner lived and said, you know, you have to 
come with me. You have to see something going on at the club. And they were still, you know, going on about 1 o'clock. So it was uh, just phenomenal that it was going on. And, and um, you know, it just worked out one night. A reporter for Time Magazine came in and covered it, and Dick Gregory became a really uh, big star. And he just got a uh, star in the Walk of Fame last year or maybe the year before. And one of the first things he said was, I credit Hugh Hefner for me being here. You know, he broke the color barrier, allowing me to be on stage. But um, Hef did that in almost all his mediums. Uh, The TV show, he had uh, one night, he had uh, Nat King Cole, who was at the, the pinnacle of his career. He was a singing superstar on the show. And he didn't sing. He didn't perform, which people thought was shocking. And even more shocking, he sat on the sofa with Rona Jaffe and talked about her latest book. The next day, the networks and the sponsors went berserk. They said, how dare he have a a black man talk to a white woman about literature? And he didn't even perform. What was he doing there? And uh, Hef, again, was shocked. And the sponsor said, if you ever do that again, you know, we, you know, we're pulling out. And the network said, we'll cancel the show. And Hef said, do what you have to do. You know, I am only interested in getting the best performer. As someone said, uh, Hef didn't care if you were black, white, or yellow, uh, only if you could sing a song, swing an instrument, or tell a joke. And, and it, it carried through in in so many ways. I don't think we have a have enough time to chat about every every way that has really changed the country, including uh, the jazz festival. He integrated uh, the jazz festival both in the audience and on the stage. I mean, it was it was groundbreaking. And again, people think of Playboy and Hugh Hefner, and they kind of smile and wink, and it brings back. Uh, uh, <laughs> You know, the younger days and good memories, but he influenced our culture in so many ways, and and he's still around, which Mm -hmm. is fascinating. Right. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned him also having um, an African-American woman as a bunny and, you know, all of that. So there's many ways that he sort of pushed at that um, desegregation. So you tell a lot of, you've talked to a, a number of comedians and a number of comedians sort of, and you share some of their stories. And so are there any with, you know, and so you have this chapter, uh, I think it's chapter five, Leaders of the Pack, where you sort of um, have the stories of some of these big name comedians who came out of Playboy. So are there any that are some of your favorite stories or ones that you really loved? You know, it- it was such an education, and each book that I write, it, it's just an education to me, and it's it's why I write. You know, it's the pure joy of learning and then being able to share it with people. So I, I learned about uh, more about the comedians that I didn't know, and I'm a little bit younger than these people, but there were certain names that I remember, like uh, Rich Little, who was a, a big headliner, Joan Rivers, uh, Lily Tomlin, uh, Shucky Green, uh, Jackie Gale, 
Rodney Dangerfield, all these people started, you know, around the times the Playboy Clubs were, were starting. And, you know, I would even say they owe a lot of their success to Playboy because, like Jerry Van Dyke told me, they could get a paycheck while they were uh, advancing, while they were learning material. So um, the leaders of the pack, you know, and, and they loved it. You know, what wasn't to love? They got to perform. They were treated wonderfully. Um, and they got to look at pretty girls. You know, um, <laughs> David Brenner, when I was talking to him, uh, again, you know, I was happy to talk to him and, and lucky to talk to him before we lost him. Um, and he told me, he said, um, and he had to explain it, but he told me, he said, the Playboy Clubs treated you as well as the mob did. And, you know, I kind of looked at him and he said, when the mob ran Vegas, it was better. You know, they were nicer, believe it or not, when the gangsters ran it. But he said, the Playboy Clubs, you know, they took care of you. They uh, gave you work. They gave you food. Uh, and, and later on, when the comedy clubs came in, you know, the comedy club and the improv, you know, you worked for free again. You know, you just worked for a stage and for tips and maybe a part of the door. So it was... Uh, it, it was a bridge. It was an interesting time, and uh, you had the leaders of the pack. You had women coming up, and Hefner uh, gave them a stage. You know, people like Phyllis Diller mm -hmm. and uh, Mimi Hines and uh, Kay Ballard. You know, all these these women that maybe wouldn't have had as much exposure if it wasn't for Hef's TV show or or his comedy clubs. Right. And I thought something interesting, too, is that it allowed, it seemed in reading this, that it allowed performers to make connections. So there were the, the mix of having comedians with um, music acts. Um, some of them made connections and started performing with one another for the rest of their lives, right? Or for a good chunk of their lives. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, uh, uh, who was it? Julie Budd, who... Um, is a singer. She's a great singer uh, today, but she started out, what was she called? The uh, mini girl with the maxi voice. You know, she was <laughs> one of those wonderkins that, you know, at two years old, you know, could, could sing like, uh, you know, nobody's business. No, not really two years old, but I think she was performing like at 12 and 13 with the comedians. And she started uh, opening for them. You know, she opened for the big names because she was very good. Uh, she opened for Milton Berle and uh, Charlie Callis and all these folks at the Playboy Club. And then later on, uh, when she became a headliner, when she got a little bit older, she had people like Arsenio Hall open for her <laughs> and, you know, stayed in touch with all the, the comics. And uh, even though she said they were very peculiar and um, <laughs> she said she said that with love, but all comedians were very peculiar, according to Julie Budd. On another, but yes. Mm -hmm. No, I was just going to say it was a, a great networking tool. Right, and another thing that we talked a little bit about sort of the race barrier that 
Hugh Hefner pushed against, but he also, you talk about Lenny Bruce a bit and how he sort of supported Lenny Bruce, even when Lenny Bruce was, um, could have very much gotten arrested, was getting arrested often for obscenity. And so even though he wanted this family club, he was very supportive of these comedians. So can you talk a little bit about sort of Lenny Bruce and how he was sort of got that started playboy and how Hugh Hefner helped him out a little? Yes. Um, Lenny was on uh, a, re- a remarkable episode. If you can ever uh, YouTube it or get your hands on it, it's well worth it. It's an episode of Playboy's Penthouse, and it was a, a great show with Lenny Bruce. That was his introduction. And I think Hef liked Lenny personally, but he also believed in what he stood for. You know, Hef believed in freedom of speech even though he didn't showcase that at his club. You know, it it Mm -hmm. was like a fine line. So he believed everybody should be able to say what they want and believe in what they want. But, you know, when George Carlin started uh, doing the seven words you can't say on TV, (laughs) you know, he wasn't allowed to perform at Hef's clubs anymore. So uh, it was that way with Lenny. And I think Lenny was one of those brilliant people that you had to try to save him from himself. He was his own worst enemy. And Hess, uh, you know, when he couldn't allow him to perform at, at the Playboy clubs anymore, he supported him financially. He sent lawyers to, you know, plead his case every time Lenny, not every time, but many times when Lenny got arrested for obscenity. Uh, Hess really backed him up and, and tried his best to save him and unfortunately he couldn't nobody could save Lenny Bruce he was uh, just one of those uh, destructive geniuses but but there are other people like I just mentioned uh, George Carlin Mm -hmm. who um, was a funny guy but he started out you know he was a clean cut you know college guy and just funny and then he kind of found his footing and as I said he had he moved up the ladder but he couldn't do it at Playboy, and and Hef did pull him aside one time and said, "You're you're one of my best friends, and I think you're funnier than anything, but you can't be funny at my clubs anymore. <laughs> you know, I have to. <laughs> the kids have to be able to come here." Which is really right. He had these rules, like which see, like some rules, like the bunnies are not going to date the comedians, which seem to be broken very often, right? But he did. He sort of had this this idea for this club that, in some ways, is very different than what he was doing and the boundaries he was pushing with his magazine. That you know, isn't that interesting? <laughs> Absolutely, he had so many rules and regulations before. Um, for the clubs. And in talking to the bunnies, I had um, I had a different idea. You know, I had said to, to a number of them, I said, wasn't it tough, you know, with all these, you know, rules, you had to stand like this. And, I mean, they had a rule for how to put on your stockings. They had a procedure for everything. And I said, it wasn't that hard, you know, wasn't that uh, pressure to live up to all these rules. And they said, it was great. They said we knew exactly what to do, and we were given lines to get out of any situation. You know, we weren't allowed to give our last names to customers, and if a customer tried to engage us too long, 
another bunny was supposed to come over. We were always supposed to be conscious of each other and come over, and they had a line to gently get that bunny away from that that customer. I mean, it was rules and regulations for everything. And for the performers, you know, they weren't allowed to curse. They weren't allowed to to be too blue. Um, But interestingly enough, what we today consider uh, politically incorrect would be just fine. You Mm -hmm. could be as politically incorrect as you wanted, but you couldn't be uh, you couldn't be dirty. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And it was yeah. You had to be clean cut. You had to be clean cut. You had to wear a suit and tie. Um, And with the uh, a lot of the the younger comedians coming on the scene in the 70s, like Jimmy Walker, he said, man, he said, I loved working the Playboy clubs because I got a check, he said, but, you know, I had to put a suit and tie on every day, and, you know, that was torture, so it's and, funny. And they got, yeah, and they got rated by the managers, right? The managers would sort of give them a grade, and right. if they didn't make the grade, they weren't going to make the cut. Right, right. They... uh might have been put on suspension from the the circuit, you know, because they were maintaining a certain quality. Uh, you know, they didn't want to be known as just having terrible entertainment because they were known really as the opposite. You know, they had on the musician side, you had people like Al Jarreau and Tony Bennett and and all these wonderful uh, singers and musicians. And the comic side, you had people like Tom Dreesen and, uh, you know, all the big names and really funny unknown names that became household names. So, you know, they did uh, keep control of of the content. Right. And so it was like, and reading this, it was really interesting to see all the comedians who sort of got their start in Playboy and then you move from sort of the clubs and that heyday to also thinking about Playboy and Playboy cartoons, which have been eliminated from Playboy, which is which is something you bring up as well. But can you talk a little bit sort of your second part, right? The last half of your book is about being funny on paper and, and the cartoons. So can you talk a little bit about those cartoons and, and how Playboy sort of um, brought in cartoons? Rebecca, I have to tell you, as much as I loved writing about the comedians and meeting with the comedians, I adored the cartoons. I had no idea what cartoonists were like. I thought they were just, you know, people that scribbled, uh, you know, funny things and uh, good gag lines. It was a real education for me because I didn't know cartoons um, to do the research, you know, that's always the starting point. And I found out that, again, have had the best people, whether it was writers or singers or comedians or cartoonists. You know, he had people like Shel Silverstein, uh, Leroy Neiman, who, you know, I'm sure you know what his art is valued at today and even even back then you know his paintings were going for a million dollars and he was a regular uh contributor to the cartoons and Hess loved cartoons because he actually wanted to be a cartoonist before he ever dreamed of 
of having a, a women's or a men's magazine with beautiful women, he wanted to make his living drawing cartoons. And he actually even had a, a comic book published, a full 74-page comic book called um, That Toddle in Town, uh, Rowdy Burlesque of Chicago Manners and Morals. I mean, quite a mouthful. But um, and it was good. I, I had an opportunity to to look through it. It was it was funny. It was good. Um, it just wasn't good enough for him to to compete with the other great comedian uh, comic comedians of the day and people like Shell and like Leroy and like Arnie Roth and Al Jaffe and Jules Pfeiffer and and all these great artists who. Are still still working today. I just talked to Al Jaffe, who is still working at 96 years old <laughs> for Mad Magazine, and it's not because he needs the money. He does it because he loves it, and he invented. Um, I don't know if you know anything about about um, cartoons, but I didn't, and. I found out that Al invented what's called the fold in for Mad Magazine. Mm-hmm. And it, it's um, something that's been around for a long, long time. And uh, Al is still still doing them on a, a monthly or semi monthly basis for Mad Magazine. And, and these are really brilliant artists. Um, people like Doug Sneed, who is a Canadian. Artist, and he started out as an illustrator, and he was doing fine. And on a trip to Chicago, he thought, "Well, you know, Playboy's here, and I know they hire illustrators, and I'll go in and, you know, talk to them, maybe pick up some more work." Well, he went in, talked to the art director, and they said, "We we love your work, but we'd like to use you for cartoons." And Doug was telling me, he said, you know, he he got this snobby Canadian attitude and said, well, I don't do cartoons. <laughs> and then they told him what he'd be paid for these cartoons. And he said, oh, he said, that's not my cup of tea. And then they told him what they would pay him. And he said, I could learn to drink tea, though. <laughs> and um, at, in my book, I, I was lucky enough to get some examples of their work. And he is just... Uh, has beautiful, funny cartoons. And uh, again, Hef was very hands-on with the cartoons. The cartoons and the illustrations uh, had to have Hef's personal seal of approval. Every single one he would look at. And I don't think he ever uh, totally said, yes, this is perfect for one cartoon. He always wrote editorial comments and would send it back to the artist. And, Rebecca, when I say send it back, I mean he'd write a note, they'd put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, mail it to Canada or New York or wherever the artist was. They'd make the correction, put it back in an envelope. You know, it wasn't online that that this was all done, so it was really quite a process. People even like like Vargas, you know, that beautiful pinup artist, Vargas, I his uh, relative showed me some some original artwork with Hef's little notes. You know, the eyes are too wide, or you know, she needs 
strappy heels instead of, you know, whatever she had. You know, so he was very hand-on and very opinionated. He knew exactly how he wanted things to look. And I thought that was really interesting. Like, I love the fact that, one, he was like, I'm not going to, even when we got to the point where it would be much easier to look at it on a computer and change the colors. You have one story in here where I don't remember who it was, was sort of talking about, well, if you just saw it on the CD, right, if you just saw it on the computer, Mm -hmm. the color would look fine. But he was so hands-on and needed to, like, write down, and it would even be there was one point where he wanted them just to underline two words in, you know, a title. But I I thought it was really fascinating that he spent so much time with every single comic, right, and looking at all the comics. Absolutely. Absolutely. And with the cartoons, um, I think that the story you're talking about, the the cartoon editor, she was well aware that, you know, you could do uh, artwork on computers and you could send a CD. Uh, but she had told this particular artist, she said, don't even ever repeat that again. You know, if Hess thought any of this was done uh, by computer, you know, it would just really offend his sensibilities uh, towards the art. So that'll be our secret. You know, if you have to do something, you could send it to me and I'll print it off and, and we'll, we'll just shelter him. You know, so, uh, yeah, it was very hands-on and uh, just very interesting. The cartoonists were, uh, I think they told the funniest stories. You know, and, and that's how I try and balance my books with uh, history and facts, but then a little bit of lightness and funny stories about the Playboy Club. Uh, Jules Pfeiffer, one of the uh, great artists and uh, award-winning artists for a lot of his uh, animated uh, cartoons, he told me, he said, I got some of my best ideas for writing carnal knowledge from hanging out at the Playboy Mansion. Well, I had momentarily forgotten that carnal knowledge started as a book, and I didn't know that Jules Pfeiffer wrote it. So I I thought that was not surprising when I thought about it, because where else would you get your your great (laughs) ideas for a book like that but the Playboy Mansion in the 60s and 70s? Um, But, you know... Great, great stories and great illustrations and examples of the work in the book. Right, and Hugh Hefner also tried to start a magazine, the Trump magazine, with the um, with the cartoonist from Mad Men, and that didn't seem to work. But there's still some great stories in here about them flying out to the Playboy mm-hmm. Mansion and wanting to... I love the story about how they wanted to... Um, they were looking at the pool, but they were swimming, looking at each other in the underground pool. Yeah. And they were like, this is probably not how it's supposed to work. <laughs> but, right. The underground um, uh, grotto at the mansion <laughs> where you go downstairs and uh, it's like an aquarium. You, you saw, typically you saw the girls swimming and they'd swim by these windows, but the the guys were taking turns swimming, and they'd end up looking at each other. And <laughs> they said somehow this, you know, I don't think this is how it's done. And you also talk about so you there's a number of uh, male artists, 
But there's also one female artist who's been doing work more recently for Playboy. And so can you talk a little bit about her and the work she's been doing, Olivia? Yes, Olivia. Um, really one of my, my favorite artists. I think she's just phenomenal. And she works in the, uh, the style of Vargas, you know, a pinup, uh, pinup artist. I call her a pinup artist, uh, but she refers to herself as, as cheesecake, which I thought was interesting. Uh, but beautiful work. And, um, you know, I, I think Hef might have had a little resistance at the magazine using a female artist. I really do. You know, that's the feeling that I got. Uh, they gave her smaller jobs in the beginning once, once Vargas no longer, uh, worked. I think, I think he retired before, uh, before, I think he stopped working before he passed away, but it could be he passed away while he was working. I forget. I'm sorry. Um, but anyway, Olivia took over in that same uh, genre and just beautiful, beautiful uh, work. But her background uh, was kind of unique. You know, a, a woman, she studied fine arts in New York. Upon graduating, she couldn't, uh, or maybe she didn't even graduate, I don't know, remember. But um, she couldn't find work, you know, fine arts. So in order to get a paycheck, she started going around to the men's magazines and drawing for them. And uh, she has quite a, quite a few tales about even the higher echelon uh, men's magazines like Hustler and Larry Flint uh, Bob Guccione from Penthouse. Uh, she was in the thicket of of all of their heydays and uh, working for them. And very unique having a, a woman artist and a strong woman artist uh, working with men for an ultimate male consumer. Right. So you end your book just with a little bit about Hugh and, and sort of why Hugh Hefner is really important and how he sort of has created, and some of what you've been talking about all along, how he started out and wanted to be a comedian, but how he sort of built not only this, um, he built a space where that really influenced the ways in which we sort of see popular culture and, and, you know, and a cultural shift. And so I don't know if there's anything you want to add about that we haven't talked about, about sort of the legacy of Hugh Hefner and the legacy of Playboy. You know, um, I just think Hugh Hefner, it, it was a learning experience for me. Uh, and I have one book that's already been out for two years and it was still a learning experience and uh, a memory jogger to remember and learn how important Hugh Hefner really was to the changing culture of many decades. You know, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they were pivotal points in our society. And, and through his magazine, he championed a lot of progressive ideas. He gets a bad rep from the... Uh, the women's movement, but yet through his magazine, he was very pro-choice um, uh, when that was not 
a popular issue and it wasn't a uh, expressed idea, you know, and for a major magazine to take that on. He was pro-choice. He was, uh, when the pill was being debated, he was very much for birth control and women's uh, rights to control their own bodies, their own reproductive rights, uh, freedom of uh, speech rights. We, we spoke about that. So he really did help advance the culture in that way. Segregation and desegregation. Uh, I spoke to many people who worked during those times, and they all credit half with being uh, advancing that. So uh, he really, again, doesn't get credit for a lot of those cultural things, but also for a lot of his business decisions. People um, think to think, you know, he just got lucky. Where he was or is, we still have him with us, he's a certifiable genius, his IQ is way up there, and a lot of his business practices. He came up and started using franchising as a business concept before, you know, every other company did a franchise uh, business model. He also uh, branded before President Trump ever thought about slapping the Trump name on a building, Hugh Hefner had perfected the idea of branding. Uh, so uh, just many practices, business practices, that were directly Hugh Hefner's ideas. Cross-marketing, uh, the magazine promoted the clubs, the clubs promoted the magazine. Sounds like a simple idea today, but back then it was a uh, unique and, and novel idea. So there are, I really think uh, Hugh Hefner is, has a big part of advancing our culture and changing our culture. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking a while, so just one last question. Is there anything you're working on right now, or do you have anything else coming out that you want to just talk about for a minute? Uh, well, I have uh, I have Playboy Laughs coming out, and at the same time, <laughs> I have another book coming out that's totally different. It's a coffee table book about movies that were made at the Plaza Hotel in New York. And again, it's another cultural a book, but it's uh, a photo album. You know, pictures like uh, Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest, uh, The Great Gatsby, all the way up to uh, The Way We Were and Bride Wars. Uh, for any movie buffs, it's a great, uh, great history and a, a beautiful photography. Um, and it's called Starring the Plaza. Uh, Robert Redford did three movies at the plaza and uh, just many, many. It's the go-to place for a lot of filming and TV shows. The Sopranos filmed there. Uh, you know, of course, Neil Simon had Plaza Suites, and um, that is uh, available at the same time. <laughs> fabulous, fabulous. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. And I agree, like, reading this, learning so much more about the the various ways in which Hugh Hefner impacted and made an influence on our culture is really fascinating, especially with comedy and his role in comedy that you really don't associate him with, I think, a lot. So thank you again, Patty. This is Patty Farmer, um, the author of Playboy Laughs, the comedy comedians and cartoons of Playboy. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It was a wonderful uh, spending time with you. 